Well, this morning we are uh, continuing a sermon series that we started next week, and that, or started last week, and that will be in throughout the summer on the Psalms of Ascent. Those are the, the Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, that composed the book of songs that Israel would sing and pray when they made their journey, their pilgrimage to worship God in Jerusalem. And so we've called this uh, sermon series Songs for the Journey. Because truly, uh, really, every bit of the Christian life uh, is a journey. It's a pilgrimage. In fact, in Hebrews, uh, in that great chapter on faith, Hebrews chapter 11, the author describes faith as that these were people who were seeking a better country, that they recognized the sin and brokenness of their lives and of this world, and they longed for more. They longed for a life with God that began in this life and lasted for eternity. And so we're looking at these psalms as songs for our journey of faith, for our pilgrimage with God in Christ. And so uh, today we are looking at Psalm 121. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep you. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. About a year ago, I had, a little less than a year ago, I had the opportunity uh, to take my boys, uh, Houston and Hart, five and eight, uh, to take them snorkeling. They were uh, excited to go snorkeling. They had seen, uh, I imagine, snorkeling in wildlife TV shows. They'd seen the beautiful pictures under the water, the reefs and the colorful fish, even the excitement, maybe we'll see a shark. Um, And they were ecstatic and excited to go snorkeling. I was starting to get excited about this father-son bonding time that we were going to have as I looked at the the picture in the snorkeling brochure of the crystal clear water and the happy family just swimming with the fish and playing. I thought, dad of the year, this is going to be a memory that they will treasure for a lifetime. And so I went to the, the hut, grabbed the snorkeling gear, lugged it on my back to the beach, sat down and put the snorkeling gear uh, on my five-year-old and my eight-year-old. And we got up and we started walking towards the beach. Now, walking in snorkeling gear uh, in sand is not, it's not easy for a 37-year-old man who's been walking for most of that time. Uh, it is, it's actually quite funny to watch a five-year-old and an eight-year-old try to walk in, flip, fins going every which way, glass fogging up, can't quite see their way. Well, it's funny until uh, the screaming starts, the dad carry me. So I lug them into the water and we get into the water. And instead of crystal water, pristine beauty, beautiful fish, we can't see anything. The water's been stirred up. There's nothing but sand in the water. The kids are complaining that my, you know, my mask is too tight. It's hurting my head. I can't, 
So all of a sudden, I'm arguing with them that we need to stay in the water and try to snorkel. They're holding on to my neck while I try to swim us all to the reef. Eventually, it becomes, you pass a point as a parent where you decide, you know, it's just, it's just not worth it. What do you want to do? So we, we drag ourselves back up to the beach. We pack up the snorkeling gear and we take it back. There was a massive gap between what they expected snorkeling to be and what snorkeling was. There was a massive gap between what the brochure told me that snorkeling was going to be and what snorkeling turned out to be. I expected it uh, to be so much easier than it was. I remember my conversion to Christ uh, as an early teenager. And in some ways, it's much the same story. Uh, I thought it was going to be so much easier uh, than it has turned out to be to follow Jesus. I remember uh, on the high of that experience coming to know Christ and really being quite convinced that now that I had Jesus, life was going to be awesome. I wasn't going to sin anymore. All those old addictions that were so difficult to overcome, now they were going to be in my rearview mirror. All of my relationships were going to work so smoothly because I had Jesus. And that lasted maybe 24 hours before I realized that, you know what, those old sins and temptations, that addiction, that was still there. That fundamental selfishness that, that plagued all my relationships was still there that it is a difficult journey following Jesus. Amen. If you remember, if you were here with us last week, Psalm 120, when we began this, uh, these songs for our journey, it started off with a man looking at the life that he had around him, life in the world plagued with sin and guilt and ruin and violence, and him saying, I've got to leave this place. I've got to go seek after God. And so he begins his journey. And then it goes immediately into Psalm 121, which I think is for us a reminder that the journey that we start is a hard one, that it is harder uh, than many times we begin expecting it to be. Amen. We face real obstacles both on the outside of us and on the inside of us in this journey with Jesus, that if we're unprepared for them, if we're unequipped to deal with them, can wreck us. But this psalm comes along to tell us that the Jesus who saves us is the same Jesus that saves us day by day in the midst of our journey from our stumbling, from our sickness, from our temptation, from our sorrow. That Jesus is active and working in the day-to-day -day stuff of our journey with him. But the troubles that we encounter are real. Look at just some of the, the troubles uh, that the psalmist uh, tells us that we'll encounter. Verse 3, he won't let your foot be moved. The word there is he won't let your foot slip. They're right in the journey that we come to, it's possible for us to slip and to fall. That the journey will require us to be more sure-footed and skillful climbers than we actually are. Amen. And so there's places along the way where we will slip, where we'll stumble, where we'll fall. That we are weak uh, people and not nearly as good at, at the journey as we want to be. Amen. Furthermore, he says, look at verse 6. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Right, as you were, if you were a Jew on this journey to Jerusalem, 
in this, in this day and age, it was a journey that for the average person, for the average Israelite, would have been undertaken on foot. There in the midst of a Middle Eastern sun, you can imagine that it got hot, you got tired, you got, there would be times in the midst of this where you'd feel burnout and ready to give up, ready to hang it up and quit the journey. But he says, I won't let the sun, I won't let the sun that you journey by, I won't let it get to you. I'll protect you from it. I'll even be your shade along the way. So I'll keep you from exhaustion. I'll keep the external forces from wearing you out and wearing you down. And then he furthermore says that the moon won't strike you by night. Now that's an interesting expression. Right? We don't think, as I think of a journey at night, I don't think of the heat of the moon being a problem in the midst of it. But what he's getting at here, this is an expression. The idea of being moonstruck uh, in the ancient world was, uh, it was a shorthand way of talking about psychological distress, mental and psychological anguish. We maintain a part of that uh, word tradition in our word lunacy or lunatic, right? It comes from luna, moon. There was this idea that uh, a journey undertaken at night under the moon could sometimes cause us uh, to go nuts, to begin to lose our grip on our own mental and emotional and psychological well-being. And so the psalmist is saying that there's nothing outside of you, not the, not the heat of the sun that wears you down or the slippery rocks that make you slip. None of that is going to keep you from reaching the end of your journey. And the internal stuff that we encounter in this life, when we go through difficult times and we go through a difficult journey and we find ourselves on the verge of being overwhelmed with sorrow or when we find ourselves giving in to compulsion or feeling like we're racked with anxiety, he's saying that there's stuff that you can encounter in your inner world in this life that's hard to get through. Right, does anybody know what that's like? But he's saying that God can protect you even from you. God can, God can watch you even in the midst of an inner world that you don't feel like you can get control over. Anxieties that you don't feel like you can control, despair that you don't feel like you can pull yourself out of. That God can watch over you and tend you in such a way that even the chaos of your inner life doesn't hold a barrier to you uh, walking through this journey. And so the threats are real, the obstacles are real, both those outside of us and those inside of us. The journey is hard. And so the psalmist, we get these great words, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? This has become one of those uh, lines of the psalms. That if you know, if you're familiar at all with the Psalms, you may have heard these verses at some point. Along with the Lord is my shepherd and, and things like this, this becomes the things that we print up on Christian bookmarks and uh, put on picture frames that you bring back from a, from a camp trip. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And yet, uh, these verses are, I, I want to propose, not, not quite as neat and as inspiring as they seem at first. Because here's what uh, an Israelite on the journey to Jerusalem would see is they lifted up their eyes to the hills, right? You remember we said last week that Jerusalem was actually the highest point in Israel. So, so wherever you were coming from to get back there, you were going up. That's why the psalm is, these psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent because it was a journey upward. And as you started on the way to the mountain, the great mountain, the mountain where God's temple was, 
as you started to get up into the hills on the way to the mountain, as you lifted up your eyes and looked up to the top of the hills, you might have seen beautiful things, right? It's pretty to look up at hills and to look up at mountains. But the tops of the hills in the ancient Near Eastern world were full of idols. They were full of temples to false gods, even in Israel, right? Oftentimes, as you read the Old Testament, uh, if whenever a, a prophet was leading a, a movement of renewed worship in Israel, the first thing that God had them do was to go up to the high places, go up to the high ground, and tear down the temples, tear down the Asherah poles, which are idols to other gods, tear down the Baals. Because the ancient, uh, in the ancient Near East, they lived in a world where their view was that the higher you were on the tops of the hills, on the tops of the mountains, that that was a thin place where the barrier between heaven and earth was, was thin, and that the gods could be reached. That if you prayed to the gods there in those thin places where the, the gods' world and the humans' world touched, that they were more likely to hear you. And so, on all of these hills, on all of the hillsides of Israel, you would have seen and heard and been aware of other ways of worship than the way that they were going to worship there in the temple. You would have seen and heard the sounds of sacrifices being made, false sacrifices to false gods, maybe even at times human sacrifices. That's what the gods of Mesopotamia and their neighbors required. You would see ritualized male and female prostitution around these shrines as they sought to get the fertility gods, the gods who brought rain into action, uh, through essentially uh, religious sexual slavery. You would have seen that up on these hillsides. And so when the psalmist, in the midst of the difficulty of this journey, says, I lift my eyes up to the hills, where does my help come from? It is not a rhetorical question. It is not him looking up at nothing and saying, where can I find help? in the midst of these beautiful hills. It's him saying in the world of competing gods, in a world where all of my neighbors are turning to other gods to help them get through the difficulty of this life, where do I turn for help? Where do I turn to help me through this difficult journey? Will I let my heart be led astray to idols? Will I go, and and in the midst of this journey, will I go and make my offering to the rain god so that maybe the rain falls and my crops go well? Or maybe I just get a break from this unrelenting heat. Or do I go and make an offering to the fertility god so that maybe my wife and I can conceive and bear children? Or do I go and, and, and make an offering to the god of this mountain so that I'll be safe as I pass through it? Do I look to add other things, other gods into my life with the true God, in order to protect me, in order to give me comfort, in order to give me relief. Now, on one hand, this world sounds a million miles removed from the world in which we work out our faith, right? Probably you, let's say you were driving here or walking here today, probably you weren't tempted to say, oh, should I turn off to the side on my way and quickly make a quick blood sacrifice to an idol so that my job goes better, so that my family goes better. And yet each of us, in our own way, every day, is tempted to believe that we need to add other things into our lives 
that if we get them will give us the life, meaning, purpose, and joy that we're meant to have in Christ. Right, I don't know, I don't, if we had time to sit down and talk, I think we could get to know one another pretty well. I know some of you quite well. And we could get to know what are those things, those things that you believe that if you don't get them or have them in your life, then even if you have God, your life is without meaning. Right, how do you complete the sentence, if only I had blank, then my life would be, would be smooth sailing. Right, if only my job uh, paid better and I had more money and more stability, then, then I could be happy. If only uh, I had a spouse, then, I then my loneliness would finally be removed from me. Then I would have companionship and intimacy in my life. Then it would work for me. All of us are tempted to lift our eyes to the hills around us, to look at the things that the world offers us and to say, I need, to, I need that. I can't live without that. And yet the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right, he says, I look, I look not at the, the hills as populated as they are with idols, but I look to the God who made heaven and earth and the hills and the stone and the wood that somebody came along and decided to carve idols out of. The God who made the hills and formed the mountains, the God who formed the stars and the sky and the sun, the creator God. The one who made isn't just the God of this stream or that mountain, but the God who's God of the entire universe. He's the only one who's able to help me. In a sense, he lifts his eyes up above the hills to see the mountain, the great mountain, the mountain where the temple, where God dwelled with his people, that temple where heaven and earth truly met, where God accepted the worship of his people and showed them grace, he looked beyond the hills and their offers of gods and looked to the mountain in Jerusalem where he could meet with the true God. You know, we need, uh, in the midst of the difficulty of this journey, we need to have the ability to set our eyes on the place where heaven and earth meet, to set our eyes on Jesus, to join with the author of Hebrews who tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because, you know, one of the, the great, uh, if you read through the pages of the Old Testament, a lot of the humor of the Bible is lost on us because we, we read it through our cultural eyes. Sometimes we just don't get the jokes. Uh, but one of the things that the prophets of the Old Testament love to do is to make fun of the idols, to poke fun at the worship of false gods, Right, at one point Isaiah says, uh, you know what, you take a piece of wood and you chop it up and you use some of it to make your fire, you use some of it to make a seat for you to sit on, and you use another part to make a God for yourself. How do you know that you lit the right one on fire, sat on the right one, and, and worshiped the right one? Right, if it all came from the same lump of wood. Right, other places, uh, the main way that the Hebrew prophets uh, redemptively mock the idols of this world is by saying that they are, uh, they are deaf, dumb, and mute. They are unable to hear your prayers. They're unable to answer them. They're unable to speak to you. One of, the, one of the things that they'll say is that your idols are asleep, and you have to do something to try to wake them up. 
You might remember that great scene uh, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18, where he makes uh, a sacrifice and the, and the prophets of Baal make a sacrifice and they both call down fire from their God. And one of the ways that Elijah, as these, peop- these prophets of Baal are doing all that they did, they made their sacrifices, they cut themselves, they went into ritual dances. Elijah says, uh, one translation puts it this way, he says, at noon, Elijah began to make fun of them. Pray louder, he said. If Baal is really a god, maybe he's thinking or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping, so you will have to wake him up. So pray louder. And so in the midst of that, it gives some context. In Psalm 121, when the psalmist says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is the God who's always awake, who's always present to you. He's always attentive to you. He's a living and active and alive God whose eye is always on us, who we don't have to convince to come to us, to come to our aid. And so we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the living Savior that we follow. We need to learn to see Jesus as our only source of help our living and active Savior. You know, one of, the, one of the things that we see, I think, above all else in this passage is that the Savior Jesus is actively engaged in caring for us and saving us. You know, you can say uh, that salvation in the Bible has both a past, a present, and a future aspect to it. Right? So in some sense, once, you're, once you know Jesus, you can look back and say, Jesus did save me from the guilt and shame of my sin, right? It has a past tense to it. On the cross, he dealt with once and for all my sin, right? And it has a future look to it, right? One day Jesus will save me from all of the effects of sin in this world. There will be no more sorrow or weeping or shame or guilt. I will live forever in a world that's not tainted by sin and violence, Right, So he did save me, he will save me. But it also, the, the, the writers of the Bible will use a present tense to say Jesus is saving you from your sin. Right? Yes, he has already on the cross dealt with the guilt and punishment of your sin once and for all. But he is saving you from sin's power over you in this life. He is saving you from the threats that our journey in this life, that that are posed by that journey. And one day in the future, he will finally deliver you entirely from a world of sin. But this psalm is really saying that Jesus is actively saving you from sin today. Amen. Amen. You know, look at what he says. He will not... Let your foot be moved. I love the transition that happens between verse 2 and verse 3. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the God who made everything. And then he goes down. He will not let your foot be moved. So the God of creation, the God who made the Milky Way, the God who made the stars is also concerned with your stinky, slippery foot. Enough to not overlook it, enough to not let it slip. That that is not too small for him to pay attention to or to care about. That so intimate is is his care and concern for you that he cares even about the steps of your feet. 
Right? We see that maybe most beautifully in the, in the beautiful story of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Where the hands that fashioned the universe and flung the stars into, sky, into the skies took the disciples' callous, nasty feet and washed them and dried them and served them that even for the God who made the universe was willing to take that humble place to care for you and to serve you. And he continues to. Jesus is daily tending to your needs and looking out for you, helping you uh, in your fight against sin. What is Jesus saving you from right now, today? You know, I think that's a, a really important question. It's an important question for us to know. What is Jesus saving me from right in my seat right now? It's important for you to know so that you can pray, so that you can look, at, look to him for that, for that saving power, so that you can go to him in gratitude in your journey. It's important for you as you learn to tell your story. As you learn to tell the story of God's redemptive work in your life to your friends, to your neighbors, to your children, what is your story? Yes, it's what Jesus saved you from back in the, in the moment that you first trusted in him. But it's also what he's saving you from right now. You know, if you want to see your neighbor's eyes glaze over, start your story and they ask you, you know, who is Jesus to you? If you want to see him tune out completely, say, well, one day when I was at camp, when I was 13, um, I, around a campfire, I, I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. Right? It's not that that's not important. That's tremendously important. It's just not that interesting uh, to your neighbor. Right? To your neighbor who's trying to figure out uh, how to raise her kids. Who's trying, your, neighbor, your neighbor who's trying to figure out how to not have three drinks the, day, the moment he gets off of work just to cope with the stress of his life. Your neighbor is trying to find hope to get over his or her addiction, right? They don't care about 13-year-old you. But if you want to see them lean in and all of a sudden take an interest in your story, say, yeah, I can tell you something about the saving power of Jesus. I, I struggle with a short temper, and I lose my temper with my wife, with my kids. But you know what? Jesus is helping me. Jesus today is saving me. From my addiction. He's saving me, whether my addiction is to, to drugs and alcohol or just to control, to anger, to greed. Jesus is saving me. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a selfish person who thinks that most of the people in my life exist to serve me, but Jesus is saving me from that. Amen. He's showing me what freedom from that looks like. Amen. And so it helps us to be able to navigate our own story. To be able to wake up in the morning and, and find yourself in a plot in which Jesus is the Savior and he's actively working to redeem you, Amen. From, what you from the hang-ups and the sin in your life and to give you a story that, that can bring your friends and neighbors right now today into what Jesus is doing in your life and who he is. Amen. So when we lift our eyes above the hills and see Jesus, we see him as our source of help and salvation we see him as the destination of our journey, right? If you're on a journey and you lift your eyes up, you need to be able to see where you're going. If you're going to, have, if you're going to be able to maintain your, your tracking, if you're going to be able to maintain your hope that you're going to get there, you have to be able to lift your eyes up and see the hills, see what's around you, but see the mountain beyond that. 
See the Savior beyond that who calls you on. There's an amazing story. On July 4th, uh, 1952, a 34-year-old woman named Florence Chadwick. You don't meet many contemporary Florence Chadwicks, but apparently 1952, Florence Chadwick. Uh, set out to swim the Catalina Channel, a 21-mile stretch off the coast of California. She was going to be the first woman that ever swam this 20-mile journey in the rough ocean, the cold ocean, the shark-infested ocean on this journey uh, to California. The weather was awful. It was foggy. It was rainy. The water was ice cold. Around her on her swim, she had these support boats that went with her who on numerous occasions had to shoot at sharks with their rifles. That's, that, is a, that is a swim. And so she's swimming in this icy water on this foggy night. She can't see where she's going. She's got sharks around her and people in boats shooting at the sharks. And she's going and she's going and she's going. She'd been swimming for 15 hours and 55 minutes and had only a half mile to go. And she said, I can't go on. Get me out of this water. It's too scary. I don't know where I'm going. I have no idea how far I have to go. Get me out of here. Now, swimming 21 miles sounds miserable. The only thing more miserable than swimming 21 miles might be swimming 20 and a half miles and then getting out before, when you were so close to your goal, when you were so close to getting there. When interviewed after this, she commented, look, I'm not excusing myself. But if I could have seen land, I know I could have made it. If I could have seen land, I know that I could have gotten that extra half mile. Two months later, she got back in the water and she completed the swim. Because she knew the distance, she could see the land. And she knew that she could make it. I think that's something of what the authors have in mind when he says to lift up our eyes to Jesus. To fix our eyes on Jesus. Is that if we can see him. If we can see who he is and what he offers and what awaits us in him, we can persevere through the ups and downs and trials and sorrows of this life. If we know that he stands ready to welcome us, to embrace us, to hold us, if we know that the end of our story ends in the consummation of our union with Christ, joy with him forever, then we can find the strength to keep going, the strength to persevere, We can find the strength uh, to endure as we look at Jesus as the destination of our journey. And then finally, as we see Jesus, we see the one who keeps us from all evil. Look at verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He promises that he will keep us from evil. So let me ask an honest question. You know, there's a way in which I read that verse and you go, oh, that's sweet. It's, not, it's, it is, it's, it's nice to know that Jesus will keep us from all evil. But what about when it doesn't feel like he's kept you from all evil? I don't know every story in this room, but I'm looking out and I'm seeing faces and I know enough of them to know that there are people in this room whose lives have been touched and marred and broken by evil. 
Right? What does it mean to hold in one hand the confession that Jesus will keep us from all evil? And then in the other hand, to look honestly at your story and to say, but what about the abuse that I suffered? What about the betrayal that I've tasted from the people who should have been most loyal and good to me? What about the griefs that I've endured, the things that I've lost, the loved ones that I've lost, that I didn't think I could endure to lose? When you start to peel back and look at this honestly, it goes from being a a sweet little, he keeps you from all evil, to what do you mean, God? God, how can you claim to be a God who keeps us from all evil? When in my life and the lives of those I love, I see the wounds and the shrapnel of evil everywhere I look around me. How can you honestly say that you keep me from evil? And I want to acknowledge uh, that those questions are real and they're deep. Uh, They don't have easy answers. But we know what it can't mean, right? It cannot mean, and we have enough, the, the Bible is honest enough with what life is like, even the life of faith, we know that it doesn't mean that God keeps you from suffering the results of evil, right? We know that it doesn't mean that that if you trust in God, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card or a a get-out-of-a-broken-and-sinful-world-free card. Your life in in this world will be afflicted at times by sin and evil. It will taint everything. But what the promise means is that your life though affected by evil, won't be consumed by evil, right? It means that evil in your life doesn't win, that this life isn't in the end defined by tragedy and death, abuse, grief, and sorrow, that you can experience it without being overcome and consumed by it. How do we know that to be true? Friends, if you look at Jesus' life, did God keep Jesus from all evil? No. Right? Jesus suffered deeply. Jesus wept at the grave of those he loved. Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled with the, the torturous death that lay in front of him. Only Christianity actually holds out a God who suffered the effects of an evil world and actually took it onto himself, took the results of our evil, the judgment of our sin, the sting of our shame onto himself. The father let the son be afflicted and affected by evil. But did evil consume Jesus? No. No, it looked like it did for a while, didn't it? When, he, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the tomb was shut and Jesus' lifeless body lay there, it sure looked in that moment like tragedy and sin and evil and death wins in this world. But on the third day, he rose again, triumphing over death, triumphing over evil. And because of that fact, When you are in Christ, that's the main way that the biblical authors describe what faith is. It's being in Christ, being so joined together with him that his death is your death and his life is your life. When you are in Christ, you can know, know that you know to the core of your being that death doesn't win in this life. 
that evil doesn't win, that tragedy will not define you. Some of you have suffered the effects of evil in ways uh, that, that the only sane response is to weep. The only righteous response is to be angry. And yet you can know wherever you are in your journey that that evil does not have to define you. That in Christ, your story can and will end in resurrection glory, not in the shame or the pain that this world offers in its evil. I'll end with this from Romans chapter 8. Paul, a man who suffered much in this life, whose life was not spared from the pain of evil, He says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See how he looks honestly at the death and the pain of this life. We are like sheep being slaughtered. He holds death in one hand. And then he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do I know that evil won't consume you? that trials, temptations, tribulation, that none of that can overwhelm you is because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He holds you so close to himself and with such an ironclad grip that nothing and no one, nothing outside of you and nothing inside of you can snatch you from his hand. Let's pray.